The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Technica podcast feed. The Ego and Its Own by Max Stirner Edited by David Leopold Narrated by Dr. Brian Sovereign Brought to you by Sovereign Tech First University. Section 2. The Moderns If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is passed away. Behold, all is become new. As it was said above, to the ancients the world was a truth. We must say here, to the moderns, the spirit was a truth. But here as there, we must not omit the supplement, a truth whose untruth they tried to get behind, and at last they really do. A course similar to which antiquity took may be demonstrated in Christianity also, in that the understanding was held a prisoner under the dominion of the Christian dogmas up to the time preparatory to the Reformation, but in the pre-Reformation century asserted itself sophistically, and played heretical pranks with all the tenets of the faith. And the talk then was, especially in Italy and at the Roman court, if only the heart remains Christian-minded, the understanding may continue taking its pleasure. Long before the Reformation, people were so thoroughly accustomed to fine-spung wranglings that the Pope and most others looked on Luther's appearance too as a mere wrangling of monks at first. Humanism corresponds to sophisticism, and, as in the time of the Sophists, Greek life stood in its fullest bloom, the Periclean Age. So the most brilliant things happened in the time of humanism, or, as one might perhaps also say, of Machiavellianism. Printing, the New World, etc. At this time, the heart was still far from wanting to relieve itself of its Christian contents. But finally, the Reformation, like Socrates, took hold seriously of the heart itself, and since then, hearts have kept growing visibly, more unchristian. As with Luther, people began to take the matter to heart. The outcome of this step of the Reformation must be that the heart also gets lightened of the heavy burden of Christian faith. The heart, from day to day more unchristian, loses the contents with which it had busied itself, until at last nothing but empty, warm-heartedness is left it. The quite general love of men, the love of man, the consciousness of freedom, self-consciousness. Only so is Christianity complete, because it has become bald, withered, and void of contents. There are now no contents whatever against which the heart does not mutiny, unless indeed the heart unconsciously, or without self-conscious, lets them slip in. The heart criticizes to death with hard-hearted mercilessness everything that wants to make its way in, and is capable, except, as before, unconsciously or taken by surprise, of no friendship, no love. What could there be in men to love, since they are all alike egoists? None of them man as such, none are spirit only? The Christian loves only the spirit, but where could one be found who should be really nothing but spirit? To have a liking for the corporeal man with hide and hair, why, that would no longer be a spiritual warm-heartedness, it would be treason against pure warm-heartedness, the theoretical regard. For pure warm-heartedness is by no means to be conceived as like that kindliness that gives everybody a friendly handshake. On the contrary, pure warm-heartedness is warm-hearted toward nobody. It is only a theoretical interest, concern for man as man, not as a person. 
The person is repulsive to it because of being egoistic, because of not being that abstraction, man. But it is only for the abstraction that one can have a theoretical regard. To pure warm-heartedness, or pure theory, men exist only to be criticized, scoffed at, and thoroughly despised. To it, no less than to the fanatical cleric, there are only filth and other such fine things. Pushed to this extremity of disinterested warm-heartedness, we must finally become conscious that the spirit, which alone the Christian loves, is nothing. In other words, that the spirit is a lie. What has here been set down roughly, summarily, and doubtless as yet incomprehensibly, will, it is to be hoped, become clear as we go on. Let us take up the inheritance left by the ancients, and, as active workmen, do with it as much as can be done with it. The world lies despised at our feet, far beneath us and our heaven, into which its mighty arms are no longer thrust, and its stupefying breath does not come. Seductively, as it may pose, it can delude nothing but our sense. It cannot lead astray the spirit, and spirit alone, after all, we really are. Having once got behind things, the spirit has also got above them, and become free from their bonds, emancipated, supernal, free. So speaks spiritual freedom. To the spirit which, after long toil, has got rid of the world, the worldless spirit, nothing is left after the loss of the world and the worldly, but the spirit and the spiritual. Yet, as it has only moved away from the world and made of itself a being free from the world, without being able really to annihilate the world, this remains to it a stumbling block that cannot be cleared away, a discredited existence. And, as on the other hand, it knows and recognizes nothing but the spirit and the spiritual, it must perpetually carry about with it the longing to spiritualize the world, to redeem it from the blacklist. Therefore, like a youth, it goes about with plans for the redemption or improvement of the world. The ancients, we saw, served the natural, the worldly, and natural order of the world, but they incessantly asked the service of themselves, and when they had tired themselves to death in ever-renewed attempts at revolt, then, among their last sighs, was born to them the God, the conqueror of the world. All their doing had been nothing but wisdom of the world, an effort to get behind the world and above it. And what is the wisdom of the many following centuries? What did the moderns try to get behind? No longer to get behind the world, for the ancients had accomplished that, but behind the God whom the ancients bequeathed to them, behind the God who is spirit, behind everything that is the spirits, the spiritual, but the activity of the spirit, which searches even the depth of the Godhead, is theology. If the ancients have nothing to show but wisdom of the world, the moderns never did nor do make their way further than to theology. We shall see later that even the newest revolts against God are nothing but the extremist efforts of theology, that is, theological insurrections. Subsection 1. The Spirit The realm of spirits is monstrously great. There is an infinite deal of the spiritual. Yet, let us look and see what the spirit, this bequest of the ancients, properly is. Out of their birth pangs it came forth, but they themselves could not utter themselves as spirit. They could give birth to it. It itself must speak. The born God, the Son of Man, is the first to utter the word that the Spirit, he, God, has to do with nothing earthly and no earthly relationship, but solely with the Spirit and spiritual relationships. 
Is my courage indestructible under all the world's blows, my inflexibility and my obduracy, perchance already spirit in the full sense, because the world cannot touch it? Why then it would not yet be at enmity with the world, and all its actions would consist merely in not succumbing to the world? No, so long as it does not busy itself with itself alone, so long as it does not have to do with its world, the spiritual alone, it is not free spirit, but only the spirit of this world, the spirit fettered to it. The spirit is free spirit, that is, really spirit, only in a world of its own. In this, the earthly world, it is a stranger. Only through a spiritual world is the spirit really spirit, for this world does not understand it, and does not know how to keep the maiden from a foreign land from departing. But where is it to get this spiritual world? Where but out of itself? It must reveal itself, and the words that it speaks, the revelations in which it unveils itself, these are its world. As a visionary lives and has his world only in the visionary pictures that he himself creates, as a crazy man generates for himself his own dream world, without which he would not be crazy, so the spirit must create for itself its spirit world, and is not spirit until it creates it. Thus its creations make it spirit, and by its creatures we know it, the creator. In them it lives, they are its world. Now what is the spirit? It is the creator of a spiritual world. Even in you and me, people do not recognize spirit until they see that we have appropriated to ourselves something spiritual. Though thoughts may have been set before us, we have at least brought them to live in ourselves. For as long as we were children, the most edifying thoughts might have been laid before us without our wishing, or being able, to reproduce them in ourselves. So the spirit also exists only when it creates something spiritual. It is real only together with the spiritual, its creature. As, then, we know it by its works, the question is what these works are. But the works or children of the spirit are nothing else but spirits. If I had before me Jews, Jews of the true metal, I should have to stop here and leave them standing before this mystery as for almost 2,000 years they have remained standing before it, unbelieving and without knowledge. But as you, my dear reader, are at least not a full-blooded Jew, for such a one will not go astray as far as this, we will still go along a bit of road together until perhaps you too turn your back on me because I laugh in your face. If somebody told you you were altogether spirit, you would take hold of your body and not believe him, but answer, I have a spirit, no doubt, but do not exist only as spirit, but as a man with a body. You would still distinguish yourself from your spirit, but, replies he, it is your destiny, even though now you are yet going about in the fetters of the body to be one day a blessed spirit, and however you may conceive of the future aspect of your spirit, so much is yet certain that in death you will put off this body and yet keep yourself, your spirit, for all eternity. Accordingly, your spirit is the eternal and true in you, the body only a dwelling here below, which you may leave and perhaps exchange for another." Now you believe him, for the present indeed you are not spirit only, but when you emigrate from the mortal body as one day you must, then you will have to help yourself without the body, and therefore it is needful that you be prudent and care in time for your proper self. What should it profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet suffered damage in his soul? But even granted the doubts, raised in the course of time against the tenets of the Christian faith, have long since robbed you of faith in the immortality of your spirit. You have nevertheless left one tenet undisturbed, and still ingeniously adhere to the one truth, that the spirit is your better part, and that the spiritual has greater claims on you than anything else. 
Despite all your atheism, in zeal against egoism, you concur with the believers in immortality. But whom do you think of under the name of egoist? A man who, instead of living to an idea that is a spiritual thing, and sacrificing to it his personal advantage, serves the latter. A good patriot brings his sacrifice to the altar of the fatherland, but it cannot be disputed that the fatherland is an idea, since for beasts incapable of mind or children as yet without mind, there is no fatherland and no patriotism. Now, if anyone does not approve himself as a good patriot, he betrays his egoism with reference to the fatherland. And so the matter stands in innumerable other cases. He who in human society takes the benefit of a prerogative sin egoistically against the idea of equality. He who exercises dominion is blamed as an egoist against the idea of liberty, and so on. You despise the egoist because he puts the spiritual in the background as compared with the personal, and he has his eyes on himself where you would like to see him act to favor an idea. The distinction between you is that he makes himself the central point, but you the spirit. Or that you cut your identity in two and exalt your proper self, the spirit, to be ruler of the paltrier remainder, while he will hear nothing of this cutting in two, and pursue spiritual and material interests just as he pleases. You think, to be sure, that you are following foul of those only who enter into no spiritual interest at all, but in fact you curse at everybody who does not look on the spiritual interest as his true and highest interest. You carry your knightly service for this beauty so far that you affirm her to be the only beauty of the world. You live, not to yourself, but to your spirit, and to what is the spirit's, that is, ideas. As the spirit exists only in its creating of the spiritual, let us take a look about us for its first creation. If only it has accomplished this, there follows thenceforth a natural propagation of creations, as according to the myth only the first human beings needed to be created, the rest of the race propagating of itself. The first creation, on the other hand, must come forth out of nothing. That is, the spirit has toward its realization nothing but itself, or rather it has not yet even itself, but must create itself. Hence, its first creation is itself, the spirit. Mystical as this sounds, we yet go through it as an everyday experience. Are you a thinking being before you think? In creating the first thought, you create yourself, the thinking one. For you do not think before you think a thought, or have a thought. Is it not your singing that first makes you a singer, your talking that makes you a talker? Now so too it is the production of the spiritual that first makes you a spirit. Meantime, as you distinguish yourself from the thinker, singer, and talker, so you no less distinguish yourself from the spirit, and feel very clearly that you are something besides spirit. But as in the thinking ego, hearing and sight easily vanish in the enthusiasm of thought, so you also have been seized by the spirit enthusiasm, and you now long with all your might to become holy spirit, and to be dissolved in spirit. The spirit is your ideal, the unattained, the otherworldly. Spirit is the name of your God. God is spirit. Against all that is not spirit, you are a zealot, and therefore you play the zealot against yourself, who cannot get rid of a remainder of the non-spiritual. Instead of saying, I am more than spirit, you say with contrition, I am less than spirit, and spirit, pure spirit, or the spirit that is nothing but spirit, I can only think of, but am not, and since I am not, it is another, exists as another, whom I call God." It lies in the nature of the case that the spirit that is to exist as pure spirit must be an otherworldly one, for, since I am not it, it follows that it can only be outside me, since in any case a human being is not fully comprehended in the concept spirit. 
it follows that the pure spirit, the spirit as such, can only be outside of men, beyond the human world, not earthly, but heavenly. Only from this disunion in which I and the spirit lie, only because I and spirit are not the names for one and the same thing, but different names for completely different things, only because I am not spirit and spirit not I, only from this do we get a quite tautological explanation of the necessity that the spirit dwells in the other world, that is, is God. But from this, it also appears how thoroughly theological is the liberation that Farbach is laboring to give us. What he says is that we had only mistaken our own essence, and therefore looked it in the other world, but that now, when we see that God was only our human essence, we must recognize it again as ours and move it back out of the other world into this. To God, who is spirit, Farbach gives the name our essence. Can we put up with this? That our essence is brought into opposition to us? That we are split into an essential and an unessential self? Do we not with that go back into the dreary misery of seeing ourselves banished out of ourselves? What have we gained then when for a variation we have transferred into ourselves the divine outside us? Are we that which is in us as little as we are that which is outside us? I am as little my heart as I am my sweetheart, this other self of mine. Just because we are not the spirit that dwells in us, just for the reason we had to take it and set it outside us, it was not we, we did not coincide with us, and therefore we could not think of it as existing otherwise than outside us, on the other side from us, in the other world. With the strength of despair, Farbach clutches at the total substance of Christianity, not to throw it away, no, to drag it to himself, to draw it, the long yearned for ever distant, out of its heaven with a last effort, and keep it by him forever." Is not that a clutch of the uttermost despair, a clutch for life or death? And is it not at the same time the Christian yearning and hungering for the other world? The hero wants not to go into the other world, but to draw the other world to him and compel it to become this world. And since then, has not all the world, with more or less consciousness, been crying that this world is the vital point and heaven must come down on earth and be experienced even here? Let us, in brief, set Farbach's theological view and our contradiction over against each other. The essence of man is man's supreme being. Now by religion, to be sure, the supreme being is called God and regarded as an objective essence. But in truth, it is only man's own essence, and therefore the turning point of the world's history is that henceforth no longer God, but man, is to appear to man as God. To this we reply, the supreme being is indeed the essence of man, but... Just because it is his essence and not he himself, it remains quite immaterial whether we see it outside him and view it as God, or find it in him and call it essence of man, or man. I am neither God nor man, neither the supreme essence nor my essence, and therefore it is all one in the main whether I think of the essence as in me or outside me. Indeed, we really do always think of the supreme being as in both kinds of otherworldliness, the inward and outward, at once. For the Spirit of God is, according to the Christian view, also our spirit, and dwells in us. It dwells in heaven, and dwells in us. We poor things are just its dwelling, and if Fauerbach goes on to destroy its heavenly dwelling and force it to move to us bag and baggage, then we, its earthly apartments, will be badly overcrowded. But after this digression, which, if we were at all proposing to work by line and level, we should have had to save for later pages in order to avoid repetition, we return to the Spirit's first creation, the Spirit itself. The Spirit is something other than myself. But this other, 
What is it? 